alone. There's other churches out there working for the same things we're working for. Well, today we're finishing the book of John. Finally, it's done. It's over. And we're finishing on chapter 17 because, as you know, if you've been here, we did chapters 18 through the end around Easter time. And so we're finishing intentionally. This was by design in January of this year when our teaching team met. We said, oh, we really want to end on John chapter 17. And so we're ending on John chapter 17. But if you need a Bible today, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will bring you one. Uh, if you don't need one, then don't raise your hand. But if you do, you can take it. It's yours to keep if you don't have a Bible of your own. Um, so before we get into John chapter 17, there's a skateboarding trick called the rock and roll. And I'm going to teach you all what this trick is. It's not like, not like that rock and roll, but it's, I'm going to use my Bible. It's, imagine my Bible is a skateboard, okay? And this, my hand is a ramp. It's basically what you do is you skate up the ramp, you tap your front wheels on the deck, and then you turn it all the way around and you skate back down. Simple enough, right? Rock and roll. Do you guys understand that? I've been trying this trick for about nine months and I can't do it. I, I'm really, not, I love skateboarding. I'm really not great at it. I just love it. Um, and I've been trying over and over and over again. And the big joke around the skate park is, like, when I hit a rock and roll, I'm going to, like, get in the fetal position and cry because I'll be so happy, right? Because I've been trying over and over and over again. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking, that's kind of how I feel about the end of the book of John. <laughs> it's like, I'm so glad. I, I loved, loved, loved the book of John. It has grown, like, in my soul. It has changed me. Jesus has spoken, and it is powerful. But at the end of the day, it was a long book. And so I'm going to crawl up in the fetal position and cry. And say, Thank you, Jesus. We're done. Oh, but it was so good while it lasted. So the Gospel of John, if you haven't been with us for a long time, and let me just, uh, just allow me before we get into chapter 17 to just sort of set the stage, to sort of go over what you missed if you weren't here. And maybe you were here, but you need a little refresher course in the book of John. The Gospel of John is written by the beloved disciple, just as John. He's called the beloved disciple. He calls himself that in the midst of the book of John. And it's John's account of Jesus here on earth. And we, and we believe that John wrote this after he wrote the book of Revelation. It was actually the latest written gospel of all the gospels. And we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were, Mark especially was the earliest, and, and those were out in circulation. And it's almost as if John saw those books and he said, yeah, but there was so much more to be said about Jesus. We don't want to miss this. And, and, and we know that there's very little of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John included in the, I mean, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Those are called the synoptics. Um, see, you don't have to go to seminary now. Those are, those are called the synoptics. Very little of those are found in the book of John. John has all this very unique information just right in the book of John. And so it's, it's a way to look at Jesus uniquely, a little bit more spiritually, a little bit differently. John even uses different kinds of language. In the very beginning, it's apparent. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's using the words of Genesis to describe Jesus, almost as if as Jesus comes, there's a brand new creation moment found in Jesus. So this idea of that God is sending his son now to recreate the world in his image so that there is this new creation being formed in the hearts and minds of people. And Jesus is doing that through his redemption, his, his blood on the cross, through his spirit, he is doing that. He is causing people to become made 
new over and over and over again. We see these constant reminders of the garden in the book of Genesis. I'm sorry, in the book of John. We see these constant reminders of Genesis, and it goes over and over and over again. In fact, at the very end, where do we find Jesus again? We find him in a garden. And John's gospel is the only place that calls it a garden. Everybody else calls it out the tomb. But John calls it the garden. And he was mis- Jesus was mistaken for the gardener. The idea is it's the first day of new, the new creation. The book of John is all about how Jesus is recreating the world in his image. And there's also a book of signs. It's also a book of signs. And all through the book of John, we, we saw these signs of, uh, uh, of what God's kingdom is like. Jesus turned water into wine, almost to say it's like, when, you're just, when your jar is empty and when you're running out of stuff, just run to Jesus and, and he'll take your jar and he'll fill it up. Just run to Jesus. It's a book of signs. And there was a man who was sick for 38 years that Jesus healed. Jesus fed the 5,000. He heals a man born blind. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And finally, Jesus himself raises from the dead. There's these ascending signs in the book of John, and there's all these discourses talking about them. It's a book of festivals like we've talked extensively about in this church. We talked a lot about the book, the festival of tabernacles and all this stuff. The whole idea is that these festivals, another Hebrew word for festival, a word that was used was rehearsal. And Jesus showed himself as the fulfillment of these Old Testament rehearsals. So it's not just the book of signs, not just this, the book of festivals, but it's also the book where, where Jesus really reveals his own character through his name. And we're going to even see that more and more in, in, in chapter 17, because he ends up talking about his name a little bit more. And that's why Gabby read the verse this morning, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it, and they are saved. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. So over and over again, Jesus is revealing his character through his name, through who he is. And he's telling the people this, that this is who I am. So today, as we get into this final text, I want to, one, kind of set the scene, but two, take it a little bit by a little bit, because it's a long chapter, and I don't want to have to read the whole thing and then go back and go back. So we're going to go a little bit by a little bit. So Jesus, in in this chapter, would have been surrounded by his closest followers and his closest friends. And some of you have heard me say that in the book of John, what happens is like those first 11 chapters happen over the period of three years. Chapter 12 through the end happen in just a few days. So here's what's been going on. Jesus um, was anointed at Bethany by Mary, and, and he went and he had a meal with his disciples. And then he begins this long farewell discourse where he's just talking and talking and talking to his disciples about who he is and about how he's going to send his spirit and about how you need to be attached to the vine and, and, and how you have to be, you know, how just to be connected to God and what that looks like to have a relationship with God. And then finally, at the end of it, he prays. And a lot of people think that he does this totally just by himself. No one sees him. But that's not true. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and his disciples are fully present. And when he's praying, he does something that, you know, we wouldn't allow in our church. He has his eyes open and he looks up. And I'm joking. We would totally allow that. But, um, <laughs> but when we say, let's pray now, like, what do we do? We're like, 
we, that's our prayer position, right? There's like three prayer positions. There's, there's this, there's this. You know, we, we have all these prayer positions that we do, but, but at that time, you, good Jews never prayed like that. They put their palms out and they looked towards heaven with their eyes open and they spoke. And this is what Jesus would be doing with his disciples fully present. So one is sort of this picture of the master at work. I, just before we get even started in the text, does your spirituality show to your kids? Sometimes we think like, oh, that's private. And, and, and th- that Jesus, I think, if he were here, if, like, if there was something that he would laugh about, is when people say, oh, my faith is private to me. I think that is something that he would go, he would, I don't know if he would laugh about, maybe that's wrong to say, but I think that's something he would probably chuckle at. Because we say that all the time, and in our world of individualism, we, we like to think of our faith as a private thing, but it was never meant to be a private thing. Jesus now is here in chapter 17, is praying among his closest disciples, re- revealing to them an example of his spirituality. Do your kids, do your grandkids, do your, do your friends, do they see your spirituality? I mean, I'm not saying like, the, the whole Matthew 6 thing, don't do your good deeds in front of men and all that stuff. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. I'm not talking necessarily about that. That's a little bit of a different thing. What I'm talking about is, do people see God working in you? Do they see you trying to have relationship with God and working towards your relationship with God? Do your closest, does your husband see it? Does your wife see it? Do, do they see that in your life? Jesus is showing this to his disciples. And partly, it's an example. So let's get into it now. John 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Right? Eyes open, look toward heaven, palms up, he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. We're going to pause here. The hour has come. This word hour has been looming through the book of John. Remember John chapter 2, the very first thing... You know, the, Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And it's probably because you brought your 12 friends here. You know, you, you shouldn't, you should RSVP to weddings. People, you brought your 12 friends and now they're out of wine. Jesus, do something about it. And what does he say? My hour has not yet come. And all through the book of John, you know, they, they're asking him, his, his friends and his disciples said, hey, are you going to go down to the feast? And Jesus said, no, my hour has not yet come. And then it says there's this mob that surrounded Jesus, and they were going to attack him and kill him. And, and he said, but the Lord didn't permit them to touch him because his hour had not yet come. But now Jesus is standing here in prayer saying, Lord, the hour has come. He was singularly minded on his mission. He knew he had to get to the cross. He knew he had to raise from the dead. He knew that he had to glorify the Father. He did not get distracted with all the other things in life. He was singularly minded on his mission. The hour has come. Those words just bloom heavily in this chapter. He knows what is coming next. Let's keep going. Verses 2 through 5. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. It's always helpful when Jesus defines things, right? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. 
excuse me, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I love this statement where Jesus says, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the one and true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want to focus on the word know for a second before we carry on. Many groups in history have lost track of, of this original usage of the word. In fact, there was this whole group of people called Gnostics, and, and they believed that in order to get into heaven, you had to have all this secret intellectual knowledge about God. And, and they, would, they would hide knowledge, and you had to have secret knowledge and stuff like that. And there's groups like that today. And they believed in this idea of knowledge that it was secret, and it was intellectual. But one of the things I realized, this week I was up at Hume Lake, I was just reading and praying, and one of the things I realized is intellectual knowledge about Jesus is really, really important. I, I mean, you know me, I try and give you as much as I can. I want you to have meat when you walk away from a sermon. And, and I love studying this stuff for myself. It's, it's one of the, like, the great honors and joys of my life that I get to do something that I love to do, and that is to teach the Bible. And because all throughout the week, I'm like eating this stuff up. I'm gaining knowledge and intellect knowledge. But the danger in a position like mine and a danger of a position where you're constantly reading the Bible is you begin to mistake intellectual knowledge for relational knowledge, right? And we can't do that. We've got to be so careful. Like the the intellectual knowledge is super important. Like we, we do need that. We want to make sure we don't go down the path of heresy or that we don't do stuff that we shouldn't do, or anything like that. But relational knowledge is something a little bit different. So when I was in college, um, I was on the National Model United Nations team for two years. I loved the UN. I loved being part of that. I loved studying and, and working through diplomacy. I, I, it, just, it was so much fun to be able to be in that team. And I had to actually go stand in front of a picture of me somewhere, standing at the podium of the UN, you know, and the big green wall behind me, and I actually got to push the button and speak on a microphone. It was so cool. But that first year, we represented Syria, which now is just descended into chaos. But we wrote all these position papers, and in order to write those position papers, we had to study up a lot about Syria, and we ended up finding this guy named Faisal McDodd. And he was, he was the um, permanent representative to the United Nations from Syria. In other words, he spoke for the president to the world. And we found out that we could meet him if we wanted to. And we read all of his papers, all of them. And, and we, we correlated and we put those into our positions and things like that. And when we met him, he spoke great English and he talked about how, what a great job we did. But when I met him, I thought like, maybe he wants, like, I felt like I knew everything about him, but he had no idea who I was. That's what intellectual knowledge can do, right? It can make you, it can fake you out into thinking that you're friends with somebody or you have that relational knowledge of a person when you really don't. So we asked him if he wanted to go to lunch with us and he was like, very diplomatically, because the guy's a professional diplomat, said he had other things to attend to, but he was really like, no, I'm not going to lunch with you guys. Uh, <laughs> he's like, I can't go to lunch with Americans. That would be bad for my country. But anyways, um, we, we thought... Like, the whole team kind of was like, you know, it's so funny. We went and met this guy we all thought we knew, but we didn't really know him. And Jesus, like, in the scriptures, it says there's going to be two responses in heaven, right? There's either two responses that, that, that Jesus is going to give you. Come on in, my good and faithful servant. 
or away from me, I never knew you. It's all about relational knowledge. And that intellectual knowledge is super key. But be careful that it doesn't fake you out into believing that you have a deeper relationship than you really do have. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, we're going to keep going here then. Oh, actually, I did want to mention this before we move on. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. When, when we get into this text, we'll read this in a second. Essentially, in the Old Testament, God was revealing to his people, it's going to be different. You're not just going to know about me. You're going to know me. You're going to have relationship with me. And that's where eternal life is. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put their I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach me, teach their neighbor or say to each other, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The most important, we are always meant to have a relationship with Jesus. He is a relational God. He doesn't want us just to study about him and know him, although that is super important. Don't hear me wrong. That is super important. He wants us to know him, to have conversation with him, to hear from him. Because it brings the Father glory. Let's keep going. Verses 9 through 19. (coughs) And I just want to say that as we go through chapter 17, I, I feel like I could do three or four weeks on this but I feel like we had to end the book of John as well. So I'm, I there's, know that there's deeper stuff in here. If you're like, oh, this is so cool, hang out on that for a little bit. It's okay to chew on this chapter a little bit longer. I have revealed to you, uh, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now, They know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they all believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but those you have given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours. And in the world, no longer. But... They are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that you take them out of the, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may too be sanctified. In your bulletin, there's notes, and maybe you've already found those. I forgot to tell you about them in the beginning. But there's some notes, and there's some fill-in-the-blanks. But I want to go over three things that Jesus prayed for in this section about his disciples, his 12 that are with him. The first is that they remain united. The first thing that they prayed for is that they remain united. 
He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they might be one as we are one. That was Jesus' prayer for the disciples, that they would, would become one as Jesus is one with the Father in Trinitarian relationship. So in the same intimacy that Jesus enjoys with the Father, he prays that the disciples will have with one another. This is why when things like divisions, fights, anger, other things like that come up in the church or any stuff like that, we need to step back and say, hold on, because this stuff happens, we're all human, right? When this stuff flares up. We need to step back and say, hold on, what's our mission? Who do we serve? What could we agree on? Well, let's do that. Let's, let's deal with the anger stuff. Let's deal with whatever's going on. But let's, let's remember who we are, who we're called to be, so that we don't ever have divisions or things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. So the d- disciples would have a huge challenge on their hands, and Jesus knew that. He was sending them into the world. And this idea of the world is not just some innocuous word in the book of John. The world, you find it all through the book of John. First found in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But then it says like the world starts going after Jesus, starts following Jesus. But then it says the world starts to hate Jesus. And there's these two groups that found in the book of John. The, the group that's going after Jesus from the world. And then there's the group that's the world that's trying to kill the other disciples. And so Jesus knows trouble is coming. And so he says, hey, I want all my disciples to remain one. Because when they're, when they're unified, can, they can handle the trouble. But they've got to be unified. So the disciples are sent out into an unbelieving world. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he's basically saying, you can't let anything divide you. And this is where we have to be too as a church. You can't let anything divide you. We've got to continue to go after Jesus. Two, that his disciples would receive their substance and their strength from the words, or from the word, whatever you want to, word or words, from the words of God, from the words of Jesus. If you remember it, back in chapter 6 in the book of John, what happens there? A lot of disciples begin to say, wow, Jesus, that's a really tough teaching about communion. He was talking about drinking the blood and eating the flesh, and he was doing it in a way that was kind of hard to understand. And many John 6.66 says, many of the disciples began to leave him. And then a, a few verses later, Jesus looks over to Peter and he says, don't you want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have come to know and to believe that you have the words of eternal life. We know that your words are different. And I love this. In the book of John, it really, in the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. <coughs> Chapter 6, we know you have the words of eternal life. Do you receive protection from His Word? Do you receive strength and substance from His Word? Some of you are like, no, I don't. Then the follow-up question is, do you read His Word? Because I think when you are daily in that pattern, you begin to receive strength from His Word. Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. All through chapter 17, you start, saying, you start hearing things like, 
I've protected them by the power of my name. Lord, by the name you gave me, I've protected them. I've kept them safe. And is this a physical safe? Is it a spiritual safe? I mean, we, we don't, I, I think what Jesus is talking about is a literal safety that he actually kept his disciples safe. But the question is, what is safe? In a world that right now, that, that just seems crazy, like there's a shooting in a church today, there's, there's like three earthquakes in Mexico that were just gnarly, and there's the hurricanes that, that have just destroyed everything. Like, are we safe or not safe? And I think the answer is that you're safe when you know Jesus and when you're in relationship with Jesus because even if you die, you are safe. That there's nothing that can harm you when you are in relationship with Jesus because the, the teaching of Jesus is precisely that you begin to live forever with him. And so even if you die, you live. So what is safe? So when you're in relationship with Jesus, the idea is that you are safe. The third thing that Jesus prays for here is that they remain holy or sanctified. These are words we don't use often enough anymore, but Jesus prayed for it. And he brings up over and over again, <coughs> like I've already said, the world and how the world, the world isn't some place on a map for John, right? For, for John, as he's writing about the, word, the world all the time, he's not talking about like the globe or anything like that. He's saying this place of darkness, this place that doesn't know Jesus. That's the world for John. And the prayer is that for Jesus is that we remain sanctified or holy. In other words, we remember we are a set-apart people. We are a people who are, who are called to live differently than this world. Not of the world, like he says here in chapter 17. Of course, we're in the world, but we don't, are not of it, you know? And the idea is that we don't fall into the patterns of this world. That's what, that's what uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in, John, in Romans 12, is that we, we're not falling into these patterns of the world, but that we are falling into the habits and the patterns of Jesus. And that way, you remain holy. I mean, really, God has made you holy. God has set you apart. In the Wesleyan Church, there's, uh, there, this is a whole other series in and of itself. There's so much teaching on this. But there's something we, we call entire sanctification. And it doesn't mean that you're, you walk out of the sanctuary glowing or something. It doesn't mean that you, know, that you, that you um, are the greatest person who ever lived. You know, it doesn't mean that you're entirely perfect. What it means is that you lose the desire for the flesh, for the sinful stuff. And your desire is holy for the kingdom, for God's kingdom. That's what entire sanctification means. And we, we just said this is an experiential thing. Some people are, are sanctified when, you know, just they, the moment they come to know, know Jesus. We, we call that initial sanctification. They just come to know Jesus, but they still have all these habits from the world, habits and patterns and things. And there's this progressive view of sanctification. Like, you've all lived through this, I'm sure, where, where it's like, God, why did I just fall into that sin? Why did I just do that? Why did I say that? I didn't want to do that. I keep making the same mistakes. I keep doing that. And this is process of growing. And then, then this point of entire sanctification where you say, yeah, Jesus, I'm wholly sold out to you. That's the, the view of it, at least. <sighs> Let's keep going. John 17, verses 20 through 25. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you, by the way. That all of them may be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be also in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, in them and, I, and you in me. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them. And I'm sorry. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, for the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, <coughs> excuse me, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you, and they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Jesus has kind of wordy prayers, right? <laughs> the first thing that Jesus prays for is a multi-generational disciple-making effort. A multi-generational disciple-making effort. So what, what I'm talking about here is not that like, it is part of it. It's not necessarily that you disciple your, your son or daughter and they, and they disciple your, their kids. That's part of it. It's that when I disciple people, then they disciple people who disciple people who disciple people. That's what Jesus is praying for here. That, is that the effect of the original disciples would create more disciples, that create disciples, that create disciples. This is what he's praying for. So the question here is, who are you discipling? Who are you giving courage or strength to? Who are you giving the foundations of the word off to? Who are you discipling? Next, Jesus prays that we might be one. This is a huge theme of Jesus' prayer, and we saw all through that first part to the disciples. Now it's for us. Now he's praying for us. Is that as the kingdom expands, he prays that we would be made one. But when you look through church history, the sad thing is we weren't really one very easily, right? I mean, let me just give you the, the very, 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 very Twitter version of church history. This is such a Twitter version. The Council of Ephesus in 431 produced a split in the church, and then again in 451. There was a great schism of 1054, and then the Protestant Reformation in 1517, creating a splintered church that had all sorts of different ideas. We're a product of the Protestant Reformation of 1517. I mean, Jesus prays that all of us would be one. And, and I started to think about this this week, and I thought, you know, in 2,000 years of church history, we've really kind of messed this one up. I'm sorry, Jesus. So what do we do? And, and the answer is, I don't really know. But I know where we are one. And that is, when there's a... North Korean Christian killed. No one says, oh, well, they d believe this or they believe that. It was because they put place their faith in Jesus. When there's a Coptic Christian killed, none of us go, well, see, the Coptics have a different view of the Trinity and the hypostatic union of Christ, and you know, none of us ever debate that. We just say a follower of Jesus was killed. When, when they kill in, in Uganda in the early 1800s, People who became Catholic were killed because they placed their faith in Jesus. We, we don't start going, having debates about transubstantiation, right? Some of you are like, what did he just say? 
It's okay. We don't have debates about theology on that. See, this is the stuff we, we split with these other churches about, the, the theological words I'm saying. We, we don't ever debate that. We just say somebody who placed their faith in Jesus was killed. So unfortunately, where we become one is in the blood of the martyrs. And I hope, and I would pray, that as we read John 17, that we would become, that we would start to say, Lord, could we become one more in life than we are in death? Could we just become one, so we don't have to be martyred, can we, can we become one more here on earth? And can we act that way more as a church? And, and really, that's why we prayed for other churches today. I, w- I was up reading this week, and I was like, man, we've got to start praying for the other churches around us. Because we need to be one with them. Because we need to actively work on what Jesus prays for us for. There's different things we could do. One, we could refuse to speak poorly about other Christians or other churches. I mean, it's so easy to do. Ever, anybody ever hear of that church that pickets people? The military members who died, they, go, they actually go picket the funerals? That was horrible. Like, I could easily say a thousand mean things about them. And, you know, frankly, I'm not really sure if they're theologically on track. But my point is, that they're not the ones I'm concerned about. It's, there's other churches around us. They're great churches. And maybe you've gone to some of them, but we have these little, like, consumerism critiques of them. Right? Or maybe even here, it's like, well, they didn't greet me soon enough. Or, or, you know what, like the coffee isn't good after church. They didn't have my creamer, so I left. The lighting wasn't right, and I didn't get here all the way. And, you know, we, we get these critiques. It's like, I didn't like how the pastor was on the book of John for 400 weeks. You know, like, we, we get these critiques of, of these other churches, and, and we just sort of like, oh, you know, we got a coffee, we got whatever, and we just start, like, letting them out. What if we started building up other churches? Whenever I talk to other people about other churches in our community, I always talk about how great they are. Because they're, they're on our team. They're, they're our friends. They're, they're, they're a different church. They worship differently. They're a different flavor of Christianity. But they're, they're our brothers and sisters. And so we always try and build them up. Pray for God's kingdom regularly. Like I said, don't just pray for our church. We, we put these out as an example to pray for other churches continually for their ministry. Here's the next thing that Jesus prayed for. Jesus prays for believers to be with him so that they will see his glory. Isn't it interesting? I, I, I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, Jesus ultimately prayed so that we wouldn't have to live on faith, but that we would live on sight. That's so cool. I want to I see his glory. Jesus prayed that we would be one with him one day, and that and, and, and that just as he looks at the thief on the cross and says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus is praying that we will get to see him in paradise one day. <clears throat> and I think it's amazing that just nestled into this prayer is this deep desire of Jesus for us to see him. I love that. We could see his glory. And lastly, Jesus prays, for the indwelling of his love in believers. The last thing he says is that the love that they have for me, that the love you have for me will be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Listen to this. So what Jesus is saying is, God, he's speaking to God. Father, the love that you have for me, I want that, that same exact love 
to be in these believers and the people who will believe in me. And I myself want to indwell their lives. Wouldn't it be awesome to make decisions based on the love of Jesus rather than frustration? Wouldn't it be awesome to make uh, to, to do things based on the love of Jesus ba- rather than like some random appetite that you have in your life? Wouldn't it be great to base your marriage on the love of Jesus rather than simply like, oh, we got to pay the bills together, we got to cohabitate, we got to do this, we got to do that? Wouldn't it be great if all that you did was strictly out of love, out of the love that God had for you? <coughs> and as we close this series out, if I were to prick, pick a prayer for you, that, that it, I, I think it would be this one prayer. I think it would be John 17. Like, I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking, if I were to, to pray a prayer for the church, what would I pray for? And, and I loved this out of John 17. It said that we would all be one, that we would remain holy as he is holy, that Jesus would be our source of our strength, that we wouldn't go looking for other things, but it would be Jesus as the source of our faith that we, this church, would continue in a multi-generational disciple-making effort, that God would hasten the day, hasten the day that our faith was based on sight, and that Jesus himself would dwell in all of our lives to make us a type of person who is powerful in his kingdom. So as we close out the book of John, I I simply want to pray Jesus' prayer with you. I want to pray through these central elements I want to invite you to to pray with me. I'm going to pray like Jesus prayed. So those of you who want to keep your eyes open, go ahead. It's we we won't write you up. <laughs> we have our ushers specifically designed when people don't bow their heads. Totally joking. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I pray that we all would be one, as you are one. Lord, I pray that that we would have this unity within us. That, that is you, Lord, that is your son, that we are unified by your grace, by your sacrifice, by your power. Lord, would you unify us? Father, would you keep us holy? So often there's these temptations that abound and there's these things that come up in our life and the flesh rears its ugly head. Lord, would you keep us holy? Would you protect us by the power of your name and would you help us not fall into this temptation that is all around us? Would you keep us holy? Jesus, would you be our strength? Lord, so many times we fall into other things that we think are our strength, and, and we repent for that stuff. God, we, we, we try and find strength in so many other things other than you. And so would you simply be our strength today? Father, would you use this church to be on mission, to continue to launch a multi-generational disciple-making effort? Lord, would we launch groups that launch groups? Would we launch, make disciples that make disciples? Lord, would you do that for us? Would you be in all of that? Lord, would you hasten the day that our faith would be based on sight? Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to see it through this world. Lord, I feel like I see it every week, but I I want us all to see that. Lord, I want us all to see your glory. And Father, would your love dwell in us? as it dwelled in Jesus? And would Jesus dwell in us as you dwell in him? And and God, would we be the sort of people who are active for your kingdom, 
who are bringing about kingdom revolution and change and changing the hearts and the lives of all those around us. Lord, be with this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for coming to earth. And thank you for changing our lives. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.